Hello and welcome to a new episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. We're on Series 8 and as regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. The Covid virus is still very much with us and that being the case we thought it prudent to make this series over the internet. This week I'm delighted to welcome Sarah Corbett onto the show. Sarah is an award-winning campaigner and author who began her career in activism at the ripe old age of three, which is something we're definitely going to talk about, and went on to have a successful career as a professional campaigner for NGOs, including Christian Aid, Oxfam, and the UK Government Department for International Development. However, her career took a different turn in 2009, when she created the Craftivist Collective, which champions gentle protest and slow activism, often using stitching and embroidery as a fundamental part of its process. Since then, the organisation has grown in size and has thousands of members, while Sarah has delivered talks and lectures around the globe, launched a slew of successful campaigns, and worked with the likes of the V&A, Secret Cinema and UNICEF. She's also done a TEDx talk that has been seen by more than a million people. Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. Are you there? I am. I am. I'm cringing while you're talking. Sorry, Grant. (laughs) That's all right. That's all right. Uh, Cringing is fine. Well, look, we kick off generally on this podcast by finding out where people are and also how their 2020 has been. So first of all, can you just tell us where you are, Sarah? Do you have a studio as such? I live and work in a studio apartment in an old library in East London. And that gives me an excuse to say to the listeners that if you hear any sirens, I'm completely fine. But I live on a main road with a single glazed large window so you can hear everything. So listeners, you have been warned. Tell us about 2020, Sarah. It's been a bizarre year, a tragic year. How's it been for you? Has it affected your ability to work? Oh, hugely. I mean, I don't know anyone that it hasn't really. I was supposed to be in America for five weeks, two days before lockdown. And then I lost about 70% of my work because I do a lot of sensory events because of the line of work that I do. So it's been a challenge this year. Like, I think work-wise, but also I think for everyone, it's been a challenge mentally, physically, spiritually in lots of ways. But, you know, personally, I haven't had COVID and I have had a quite a thick silver lining. I'm trying to remember that, you know, I've had time to stop and travel less and have a proper think about where I can have most impact and what I'm doing. So there's been pros and cons, I think, for everyone. And I'm very aware of how lucky I've been compared to a lot of people. Mm. And what were you going to be doing in the States? So I was going to be working with a a national health equity foundation, uh, supporting a lot of the charities that work on the ground in different states around health equity Um, and then whenever I go overseas especially to America I always do a lot of free work for different charities and teach a lot at different universities as like a nice add-on and to make sure that my carbon emissions of flying over there are you know worth the effort worthwhile so I was going to be teaching at Parsons again which I love and do some workshops and talks for the likes of UNICEF and um open foundation and different places yeah i'm, I'm right, always so. a workaholic grant as you know yes a, <laughs> a variety of things i mean look, i guess in the first instance for listeners who might not know it would be good to explain what craftivism is i mean i think i'm right in saying it's a term that was first coined by the artist activist and writer from north carolina betsy greer in 2003 yeah yeah Yeah, you're good at your research. She actually coined it while she was living in Bethnal Green, living above uh, Prick Your Finger, which was an amazing arts, textile art 
little shop and gallery and she was a knitter and still is a knitter and she noticed in knitting circles that people would often slip into talking about politics or talking about make do and mend and capitalism and what they can do you know with their carbon footprint and and all of that so she very much saw these knitting circles as a form of of activism and coined the word craftivism which just means craft plus activism and then I googled craft and activism in 2008 when I was sitting on a train to Glasgow with my job at the time it was a five-hour journey from home and I was exhausted as a as an activist in my professional life as a campaigner but also joining lots of activist groups when I moved to London and doubting the effectiveness of my own activism that I was doing personally but also teaching professionally and was completely exhausted and thought I can't do my emails and reports on a train it was a pendolino train and I knew I'd get travel sick so weirdly I picked up a cross-stitch kit that cost me a fiver of this teddy that didn't really know what to do with but I just missed using my hands and I couldn't do watercolour painting on the train because that would be a mess and I noticed there were certain elements that I thought oh this could really help my activism in terms of slowing down and thinking more critically so I googled craft activism and this word existed so you hadn't come across Betsy Greer or any of that work before that point I'd never actually done much craft work I was sort of always part of like the DIY punk scene and when I was at university I was part of like the straight edge hardcore scene where I'd like make the cakes to fundraise at gigs and and make merch for ex-boyfriends bands and (laughs) but I never (laughs) was yeah was part of craft at all and then I contacted her because I saw the word existed but she was very much a knitter which I'm not and I wasn't sure how it was activism because I'm as you've said I'm from an activist background so I'm always thinking what are you trying to change who are the power holders Mm. what are we asking to do what's the you know the change we want to see and she said anyone can use the term craftivism in whatever you do which was really gracious of her and then I started tinkering around and people wanted to join in and it all happened very organically and strangely (laughs) yeah yeah so I read your last book recently how to be a craftivist the gentle art of protest and it contains loads of fascinating words or phrases I thought it might be interesting to unpick if you don't mind yeah go for it okay activist robot what is an activist robot Sarah Uh, well it sort of links with clicktivism and slacktivism I think we've all been I reckon everyone's felt like an activist robot sometimes so it links in with you know you get a petition in an email and you go yeah I'll just do that and you don't really you know you might believe in the charity that you've got it from and you do it quickly but then you might forget about it so more of that clicktivism but then Also, I noticed that I was sometimes treating people like robots. You know, my job in campaigns was often get as many petitions signed as possible and go to festivals and sign people up. I started seeing myself as just these people are just signatures. I just need to get as many people to sign this as possible. And if people were asking questions, I'd be thinking, oh, I don't have time to answer this. I need to get the next signature. So I sometimes worried I was treating people as robots or just numbers on a petition Mm. or just bodies at a protest or a demonstration. You know, I'd have to recruit people when I was working for different charities to be outside Westminster at 7am on one campaign to get them to give out these fake newspapers around the Robin Hood tax campaign we were doing. And I just had to get bodies on the ground. 
So yeah, a bit of collectivism, a bit of just we need people to be there and it doesn't matter what type of people. And then that made me very uncomfortable. And I didn't think it was actually very strategic. You know, who are the decision makers and who do they listen to more than others? You know, rightly or wrongly, we're all influenced by different people. I thought we could be a bit more nuanced and not treat people like activist robots or treat ourselves as activist robots. Well, funnily enough, Slacktivist was also on the list, but I think you might have covered that off as well. <laughs> uh, crafter thoughts. Crafter thoughts are when you're, it's like an afterthought, but it's a crafter thought. I love a good pun. So I have crafter <laughs> thoughts questions in all of my kits and all of my projects. I have three for each and they'll be bespoke to the issue or to the, the strategy for the project you're making. And I always have one that is while you're using your hands, so particularly for hand embroidery, once you're doing a repetitive hand action over some text you might have written and you don't actually need to think, your hands start having muscle memory and know what to do. Often your brain wanders off and a lot of artists and craftspeople will talk about being in the flow where yeah. you, know, you just sort of look up and five hours have disappeared and it's dark because you've been in the zone so I get people to instead of doing that lovely blissful thing I'm like you're not doing craft you're doing craftivism when your brain wanders off that's when I get people to look at their craft of thought questions and use the repetitive hand action and the meditation and the comfort of craft to ask yourself quite uncomfortable questions so what kind of questions would you ask one is always what are my values and how am I threading them through what I do so it's a juicy question so if you're making something for yourself to keep as a physical reminder to be a good global citizen or a gift for a power holder or something you're going to put out as street art whatever you're doing what you know are you practicing what you preach can you do better yourself you know we know that people change their hearts and minds and habits from mirroring other people whether we like it or not we're all role models so it'll be that type of one. But then if you're making, like we get people to embroider bespoke messages on handkerchiefs for power holders like politicians or board members or, or, or this. And one question for that kit might be, if you were this head teacher or if you were this politician or if you were this CEO, what do you think some of the barriers are for you to implement these solutions? You know, is it capacity? Is it all of your shareholders want profit over helping the planet? What do you think some of the barriers are and how can you empathise with being in that position that they're in? Because it's so easy for activists to say, hey, you decision maker, you should be doing this, this and this. And we don't think about all of the barriers they've got in terms of their work life, but also they might have issues in their personal life that we don't think of. We're just presuming the worst of them rather than the best of them. Is empathising your craft of thought, really? It's a bit of empathising, a bit of challenging yourself of whether you're acting what you're asking others to do. A lot of it's strategy as well. So if it's making something to put out as street art, like our mini banners, a question will be, where do you think the best place is to put this that's relevant to the topic that provokes rather than preachers? So it's all, or I have all the strategy for each project and I now have the neuroscience for each of it as well for people to think through and then have the craft of thoughts. We're going to get into that a little bit later, but first I need to know what a shop drop is. Shop drop is the opposite of shoplifting. <laughs> uh, so what do you drop? So I get people to drop mini fashion statements which are beautiful little scrolls made out of watercolour paper, you know, all a dimply, lovely quality paper, um, with an embossed pair of scissors and thread on, which is our Craftivist Collective logo, 
and I get people to write in a fountain pen or a gel pen on the outside, please open me, all lowercase, all cursive, like your neatest handwriting from primary school, with a little smiley face and a kiss. And then you wrap it up in purple, turquoise or mauve ribbon and you shop drop them. So when people find them in items of clothes in shops that could be more ethical, whether they're trying them on or they've bought them, they're encouraged to open this little scroll because it says, Mm. please open me rather than open me now. And then it has a poetic message inside about this. I have three ones that people pick which one they prefer. And it's about asking people to be curious about that item of clothing. You know, is it made with joy or pain? What's the story behind that item of clothing? And to find out more. And then at the bottom, it says at Fashrev for people to Google and find out hundreds of different ways they can be part of the ethical fashion initiative. So yeah, we shop drop little mini paper scrolls. Final one, Sarah. Pretty protest. What might that be? I do love alliteration. And when I was writing <laughs> when I was writing the book that you read, the editor was like, too much alliteration, love. Too much. <laughs> Pretty protest. So again, I'm I always challenge people to think about, you know, protest doesn't have to be big, loud, brash. You know, that's needed at certain times, absolutely. But I often think the opposite of what the status quo is and just ask why I don't do the opposite for the sake of it but a pretty protest is a pretty protest so my version of that is often picnics so we've done campaigns where we're campaigning for train fares to not go up because that doesn't help commuters but it also doesn't help carbon emissions so we've done beautiful picnics inside train stations where we look like the railway children and we have tea and cakes and blankets and offer people jam sandwiches to have a conversation about the campaign. We've done pretty protests outside different companies, always small, 12 people or less, so it's not in the way and it's not uh, intimidating. And they're completely quiet so we only talk if people ask us what we're doing and we'll be stitching we'll be having tea we'll be having quiet chats with people who initiate conversations with us about what we're doing and they will look like having bunting and we all wear as much i love wearing monochrome but for our pretty protest we'll wear flowery patterns and you know not intimidating outfits Mm. lots of hopeful yellows and pale colors and a way of of trying to be as non-aggressive and attractive as possible without losing your identity but you know making it look as pretty and kitsch normally as kitsch as possible without people feeling like they're not who they are the figure of 12 or less is it coincidental that's a number on a jury i mean where did the figure 12 come from So the figure 12 actually comes from, I can't remember which, I read a lot and it was about how actually if you have more than 12 people, people tend to break off into smaller groups. 12 is probably the biggest you can have while people still feel safe to discuss and to share things without it feeling like it's too big a group. And if it's less people than 12, sometimes it can feel too intimate. (laughs) So all my workshops tend to be eight to 12 people around one table or when I've done Mm. events for over 100 people will be in cabaret style tables. So they're still sectioned off. But if it's less than eight people, it can be a bit too intense for some people. So 12 is a really good number. And if you look throughout history, you know, you got the 12 disciples, you got the jurors, you know, it seems to be a, it's used a lot in different groups as a good number to try and have those intimate conversations. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, can I take you back to 2008, Sarah? Because you've alluded to the fact you uh, you bought a kit on a train for something to do. Mm-hmm. One of the things you've talked about in, in various uh, places is this burnout that you were feeling at the time and the fact that you needed to do something else. You've been a very successful activist. 
So I'm just wondering how this burnout manifested itself. Yeah, I think I didn't realise I was so burnt out until I started this little kit. You know, that was one thing that I noticed straight away was just separating the thread to cross-stitch this little teddy. I now know there's a faster way to do it, but I get people not to do that at my events. But just separating the thread into two groups of three. If you do it fast, you'll knot it or you'll break it. So it forced me to slow down and I immediately noticed how shaky my hands were, how shallow my breath was, how anxious I was and just how exhausted I felt. I hadn't really checked in with myself and lots of activist groups I was part of we never made time to say are we okay now what baggage are we bringing to our activism are we doing okay are we burning out and I think growing up as well it was all about supporting the community and about campaigning and you know it's all about giving and Mm. actually self-care I think definitely in 2008 and before felt very hippie and privileged and you know a bit egocentric which I've changed my mind on that now yeah I immediately noticed I was actually quite burnt out I wasn't as effective as a campaigner I had a foggy brain looking back now you know I was absolutely burnt out I was physically exhausted I'm an introvert which I didn't realize at the time so I was always struggling to know you know why was I so exhausted when other people gained energy at protests or demonstrations Well, I'm interested in that because obviously you talk a lot about that in this wildly successful TED talk that you did, or TEDx talk, I should say. This notion of being an introvert, I mean, presumably you found something like doing that TED talk rather difficult in that case. Is that how being an introvert manifests itself? No. So being an introvert is about where you gain energy. So, and it's a spectrum. So, you know, you can be an ambivert in the middle. So if you're an introvert on, I'm quite an extreme introvert, which means that I love being on my own. (laughs) um, And I gain a lot. I have stimulus without needing people. My sister's quite an extreme extrovert, which means that she's desperate for stimulus. And it comes from other people. So she loves being around big groups. It gives her lots of energy. I'm always so overstimulated anyway with my own crazy thoughts and doing things that I like being with people, but I need a nap afterwards. Mm. (laughs) Um, And people are on the spectrum there. So I might, yeah, the, the TED talk I did was called Activism Needs Introverts, talking about the strengths and weaknesses of, of everyone and how there's lots of strengths to introversion that we can bring to activism without burning out. And it was a TED talk of the day, which is why it's on the TED website. So that's why it's like, it's a TED talk, but it's a TEDx talk. For me, I, I only knew I watched a TED talk called um, by Susan Cain about her book called Quiet. And I had no idea I was an introvert, but it made lots of sense. And in terms of my activism, it was because I grew up in activism and I saw how great my sister was at chanting and mobilizing people on big marches and loved it. And I wasn't good at that, but I was really good at taking minutes, being strategic, asking questions people hadn't thought of, finding unusual allies to say, well, would this person be someone that the power holder would listen to? Or if they say that they have, you know, if a campaign was done unsuccessfully, I'd always question it and say, well, what if this quiet meeting happened? Or what if we gently did this? You know, I think activism needs everyone from lots of different skill sets and different, you know, introvert, extrovert, ambivert. Um, But at the time I was just doing what I thought activism was and I was burning out from it because it wasn't my skill set and it was draining me of energy and I still go on some marches you know when I think that they're strategic and they've got a clear ask and they're not divisive but sometimes I spend more time having private meetings or 
making gifts to build relationships with people as critical friends rather than aggressive enemies. And I think we need all of it. Presumably you had activist friends. What did they make of this kind of change in 2008, 2009 in that case? Did they understand it straight away? No, I got everyone was taking the piss out of me, especially (laughs) because, you know, craft was seen as quite anti-feminist as well. You know, are you sending people back to the kitchen? And this is really cute. And then the other thing was people going, well, this is highly privileged because you need time to do it. You need money to buy the craft kits. You know, I was probably my worst critic. I was thinking, oh, my word, what am I doing? You know, there's people where I grew up in Everton where, you know, huge high unemployment, poverty issues, and I'm sitting in London cross-stitching. Like, I felt really uncomfortable. My parents didn't really understand it. And I said, I don't know what it is yet, but I'm just tinkering. I think there's something in this, whether it's the process helping people think or whether it's, you know, having those conversations or whether it's making stuff as street art. I wasn't sure at the time. Mm. But yeah, my activist friends and colleagues and the campaign world is small. So there was whispers of what is Sarah doing? This is very odd. But you know, the more I honed my craft and saw the strengths and weaknesses, the more I tried different projects that didn't work, you know, you learn from mistakes, the more I actually thought, no, I think there's something in this. And I started a blog just because I was bored of talking to people about what I was doing. I just made a little blog for people to follow, forgetting that the whole world could see it. And suddenly, within a couple of months, I was getting emails from around the world from people saying, I'm a crafter who wants to use my craft for good, or I'm a burnt out activist too, or I'm not so sure about the demonizing and throwing eggs at politicians. Is that really helpful? Mm. You know, there was people who were interested and wanted to join in. And I thought, well, if there's people who want to be part of the change they want to see in the world but they feel excluded from activism or they're housebound or for different reasons don't get involved it felt a little bit like I can't really not let people be involved so that's why I set up the collective and then it's it's grown people saw something in it sometimes before I did Grant (laughs) yeah It's interesting because there is a relationship between craft and activism that's been going on for some time. I mean, whether you think about the UK suffrage movement at the turn of the century, 20th century, when the women embroidered 150 banners that marched with them. Uh, Obviously, the women at Greenham Common in the 80s would darn the fence with wool. You know, I guess the biggest one, the one that people think about or talk about most is the AIDS Memorial Court, which began in 1987 in San Francisco. Did you look into all those models when you started this? So it was interesting because I didn't, but I I was in my own little world thinking on that train, thinking, oh my word, one, this is helping me realise how burnt out I am and how I wanted to be more strategic in my campaigning. And it gave me the time to ask those uncomfortable questions that if I wasn't using my hands in a productive way and in this comforting way of using craft, I would have gone in a downward spiral and then changed Mm -hmm. my mind to think about something else. And then the people opposite me on the train were asking me what I was doing and I thought, oh, isn't that fascinating? You know, we're in Britain (laughs) where we don't often talk to people we don't know. And I immediately thought, I didn't say it to them, but I immediately thought in my head, oh my word, if only I was cross-stitching a quote from Gandhi that we could talk about. But I wasn't, I was cross-stitching a teddy. So that gave me some ideas. Yeah, so I was thinking through them and then thought, okay, well, if I made something, where would it go? Or who would I give it to? And then it was only once those people were coming to me and saying, oh, did you know about Gandhi with his 
wheel and did you know this and I looked into it and actually what I do is quite different so I don't do anything big there are craftivists out there who'll make beautiful handmade banners for marches and union Mm. marches and I do gentle protest which is what I call our unique approach to craftivism because there's lots of approaches out there So I always say it's a bit like punk. You know, you think of punk music and you've got all these different bands and musicians who sound completely different, but they're under that umbrella. And I think we need to see craftivism like that. You know, I'm a gentle protester and I teach gentle protest. Craftivism, which is all about small and being catalysts for conversation and change so it's gifts for power holders you know some people do knitting around a big fence like the commons but our stuff is more about yeah gifts or small bits of text-based work or making yourself something as a physical reminder to keep at home or work so although I definitely feel part of that lineage or that history I don't do what those craftivists in the past have done so i'm intrigued uh with the punk reference if you were a punk band which punk band would you be sarah as an introvert can i be a loner and go for can i just be patty smith please I've, yeah all right i've got i've got <laughs> yeah. this gorgeous black and white photo postcard of her in my bathroom on the mirror next to martin luther king and gandhi and some others She's just the coolest. I'd just quite like to be Patty Smith. Can I ask, I mean, since you started all this, it seems to me people's attitudes to both activism and craft has changed. I mean, in the book, you talk about being, well, I guess, ghosted by a potential boyfriend when you told him what you did for a living. Do you think that would happen now? Yeah, <laughs> totally would happen. I mean, what's interesting is, yeah, the word activism is not as scary celebrities now are actually quite proud to put on their Twitter bio, I'm an actor, an activist of this. Sometimes I worry whether they are an activist or whether they're a philanthropist and they're very different things and we need both. I do worry that people who aren't left-wing or centre-left actually feel quite excluded, whether it's right or wrong to feel that way. Sometimes I think they've misinterpreted it, but sometimes they are excluded. So I actually focus on working with groups who still feel excluded from activist groups, but might care deeply about particular issues. And we need people, you know, of all across the landscape to be part of different campaigns so there's Mm. still definitely baggage that's around the word activism and people who have a very clear view of what they think it is and I have to challenge that a lot but it is changing and you know the fact that there's now you google craftivism and there's craftivists all over the world doing very different things with different views and different stories I think it's changing but I also worry sometimes with that as well that it might dilute it so a lot of people say well my activism is making beautiful vases making you know upcycling sleeping bags for the homeless and I challenge them on that and say okay that's more emergency relief than activism like activism is trying to challenge and change structures systems behaviors and cultures we need development and we need emergency relief as well um but that's a different thing you know i think Mm. we need to be clear on what is activism i struggle with i don't know whether your listeners are going to like this i struggle a bit with art activism i think art is about offering something that people take whatever they want from it activism for me i see more as design activism you know with design you have a goal you have a theory of change you have a plan of what's this function going to be for this object and then you work backwards to make it, you know, the most sustainable, the most beautiful, the most easy to use. But you have a clear brief. And I think with art activism, your art could be diluted because you're 
telling people what to do or your activism could be diluted because you're too vague that people might misinterpret it or you could actually disempower people because they don't know what to do with your big statement about something awful that's happened. I think we're in a world of lots of people want to be activists but really I get people every day coming to me saying I want to do stuff and I don't know how to do it or they aim too high or too low or get their strategy wrong and my passion isn't craft my passion is how to help people be kind effective activists and I think we've got to see it as a craft. You were brought up in Everton during the 80s in Liverpool your father was a vicar I believe I think your mum was a counsellor or a politician. Yep they both still are. They both still are. I mean, the 80s in Liverpool, that was a pretty traumatic time for the city, right? Thatcherism was in full flight. Liverpool was charting a very different course under Derek Hatton. Obviously, there was a horrific Hillsborough disaster in 1989. What was it like living through that period in that city? Um, Very informative, shaped me massively. It was tough. I mean, I struggle a lot when people say, oh, you know, what you do so privileged and as a white woman, you know, easy for you to say. And, you know, I I grew up in the vicarage in West Everton with high unemployment, housing that people were getting sick from because it was so damp, awful housing where we'd have heroin in the area and drugs and people hiding in our estates from the police because it was very good to hide in our patch. Huge inequality on the doorstep um, and seeing people desperately wanting jobs and wanting to work and then not it not being possible because of systems and structures and you know seeing lots of depression and alcoholism and, and all the mix that you get in low-income areas and just thinking this can't be right you know it just didn't feel fair that the area next to us had a shopping center that you could buy fresh fruit and veg and you couldn't in our patch and we didn't have a health center people would you know drive through our area but never stop so it was very we never victimized ourselves but there was definitely very aware that systems and structures could help change this not just handouts and you can pull yourself up your with your bootstraps to a point and, you know, as the vicar's kid and the politician's kid, a lot of the campaigns happened in our back kitchen. So I was incredibly, you know, grateful to be able to just listen to how campaigns were won and lost and where the strategies involved and saw and heard a lot that often people don't realise is needed in campaigns because we don't see it on the front page of the papers or in people's PowerPoint presentations because a lot of it's just building those relationships and figuring stuff out. So highly informative. And then as Mm. an eight-year-old, I went to South Africa on the only sabbatical my dad ever took. We went just after Mandela got out and I was eight. So I saw, you know, about peace and reconciliation work that Tutu was doing and how sobering it was to think, you know, if Desmond Tutu and Mandela can actually work with the people that had oppressed them and killed some of their friends and they said we've got to work with you so there isn't a civil war completely sobers you up to think if they can do it then we need to swallow our pride and try and serve the issue that's bigger than ourselves and not just scream and shout at people but try and work with people where possible and topple some people respectively where not possible yeah five years before you're in south africa at the age of three 
you were protesting about well you say you were protesting about something you're being an activist what were you being an activist at at the age of three well i say the age of three grant because there's photographic evidence from the liverpool (laughs) not denying it (laughs) from the liverpool echo the local newspaper of me as a three-year-old outside a row of social housing that was going to be knocked down to build a park that no one wanted and would have made the area more unsafe and broke up families of generations who'd have to live outside the area and our transport system in liverpool at the time was awful so we squatted you know my mum and dad and members of the community of all faiths and none squatted in that row of housing to say no this doesn't make sense in terms of our community doesn't make sense in terms of the plans for the city of safe places to live and they're good housing you know we needed the tower blocks knocked down and the maisonettes but we didn't want this row of housing so as a three-year-old you know we all did shifts with my parents and the community to save them and we got a judge involved we got both bishops to come squat with us, the Catholic and the President, to get media attention. And we won the campaign through squatting, but also through the pro bono legal work, through getting it mentioned in the House of Commons and lots of different ways. So, you know, my mum often says I was an activist in the womb because we'd have lots of campaign (laughs) meetings in our home and in other people's houses. It's funny because the photo of me, I just look quite confused, but I always did. I loved just listening and watching. So I'd often go along to things and my mum would just leave me in the pram and say to people, just let her look. Don't put her in a place where she can't see anything. She just wants to watch and listen. So it helped, you know, it educated me massively about how campaigns could be won, which is why I still campaign because I believe activism can have huge long term impact Mm. if it's done well. And what I get frustrated with is when media or people oversimplify it and then people try and do a campaign and they lose and then they give up and say activism doesn't work. Well, you took that activism into secondary school. You did lose a campaign to get rid of gym knickers, I understand. But I learned a lot from it, Grant. (laughs) (laughs) What did you learn? I learned that the PE teacher just wanted power and didn't like the fact that I was challenging it. So really, I should have tried to get the PE teacher on board and make her think that it was her idea and that it would make her look good. So that was a good learning for me. But I did win lockers for the school. So that balanced it out. (laughs) So there's a lot of social justice conversation in your household. Was there any craft? Were you making things as a child? So there wasn't craft. My mum, when we were really little, made some of our clothes. We were on a tight budget and she got given a sewing machine. But that takes a long time to do as well. I love to draw. So I draw and paint a lot, sit on my own and just draw on the, I vividly remember sitting on the floor in front of my mum's full length mirror and just drawing whilst looking in the mirror. So I sort of was like drawing backwards and reverse and would give out letters that are like opposite of writing. So I looked like I was a little witch. People would look very scared at me because I was giving them these letters that I'd written through a mirror. So I really loved that. But craft, not at all. And even in school, I didn't go to the best school. So our textile classes weren't brilliant, which is why it was quite odd actually thinking back of why did I pick up that cross-stitch kit? But I think one of the many great things about craft is 
if you have a blank canvas to draw or paint on, it can be really scary, even if you love art, which I do. Whereas if you have a cross-stitch kit, there's a pattern to follow and it's just crosses. So you can still use your hands and you're a little bit creative, but it doesn't have a blank canvas. So I just wanted to use my hands. I was sick of typing and writing and reading online. And I just felt this edge for this five pound kit to just make something with my hands, but without any pressure of it being beautiful or creative something new and noticed that the process really helped and then it created conversations and then the handmade element was really startling for people even now you know people are really shocked when someone's given them a bespoke gift that's taken hours or leaves a beautiful cross stitch that's postcard size out somewhere relevant to an issue and it's just left for people to see you know that element of it it not being perfect and it being craft and it has you know for some of us the memory of our grandmothers or of cute craft in the past actually I think the cuteness can help the message be seen and heard more than if it was big and loud and capital letters and just printed off a printer really cheaply yeah I mean reading the book Sarah it seems to me you spread yourself quite thinly how do you decide what you're going to protest about you also describe yourself as quite an angry person in another podcast so I'm, I'm intrigued what makes you angry I'm very angry. Like people say to me all the time, it's easy for you to be gentle. Like, no, it's not. (laughs) I'm I'm really angry about inequality, how it's getting worse. I'm really angry that people are part of system, you know, fueling systems where our planet is dying. We're all part of the problems and the solutions. And, you know, there's only so much we can do. But I get very angry whether people are doing stuff because they're ignorant or whether they know what they're doing and they're just thinking of themselves. Or I know it's more complex than that. But yeah, I get very angry, which is why. And I don't want to just give in and go, oh, well, it's never going to change because I've seen how things have changed in South Africa. I've seen things change in Everton and in lots of areas for the better. So I, I get very angry. I'm also a perfectionist and I really want high quality work to do. So I desperately try not to spread myself too thin. So at the moment I teach a lot. So I have the books, I have the kits. I've just done a free online course that comes out in January with Allison.com that anyone can use. I'm doing a new handbook to complete the trilogy of all of the projects that people can support the crowdfunding campaign for that. But then I also take on probably about two campaigns a year where I know that I can really help that organization or that group. There are these interesting micro moments that you describe. There's one on the street just outside Clapham Junction Railway Station where you'd seen some kids kind of behaving in a, or boys in particular conducting themselves in a manner you didn't really approve of and you made like a Barbie doll or something. Do you find it hard to just walk by situations? You feel the need to somehow respond? If I can, yeah, I do. So I was living in Battersea at the time, so I'd walk to Clapham Junction train station and Mm. go to the back end of the station for the entrance. And on the way back from work, I saw teenage boys, you know, with their arms across their girlfriends, the girls not talking, and the boys being very, you know, masculine and, you know, talking the talk. And, And they reminded me a lot of the lads I grew up with in my patch. And I just thought, well, you know, are they feeling like they've got to act in this particular way? And do the girls feel like they've got to not talk, but look pretty? And I just thought this power dynamic doesn't seem quite right. But who am I to know what they're thinking? So I thought, well, it might be quite fun if I got an old Barbie from a charity shop and I battered it up with bruises and I gaffer taped it 
nearby to where they were sitting when they weren't there because I didn't want to get beaten up um, <laughs> and I put a little placard in her hand with a, a lovely quote by the first female prime minister of India who said and I'm probably going to get this quote wrong Indira Gandhi yeah if you got the quote in front of you Grant I don't actually know sorry <laughs> it says something about um you can tell the quality of a country by the state of how the women are treated and I just I'm always trying to straddle that balance of I don't want to preach to people and tell them what to do but I don't want to give them a fact that they go, what am I going to do this about? Or I don't want something so vague that they can misinterpret it. And I just thought, actually, this little battered Barbie with this quote in a placard from this incredible person that's about gender equality, but not naming and shaming the group. I thought it could be quite interesting. And I always have a photographer friend who takes a good photograph with me because I thought even if they don't notice it, it could be an interesting image to share and for others to share and link in with different campaigns. And so I'm always trying to see how many ways that object can be used in different places. Mm. And that was done a few years ago. And it might be that now, you know, people say, oh, not so sure about there's different, you know, baggage we bring to stuff now. I don't know whether I'd do that Barbie again now, but at the time it felt like something worth doing. Yeah, well, I was going to say, let's talk about some of these campaigns, because I guess the one that's garnered the most attention is your protest to the board of MS, mm-hmm. trying to persuade them to install the living wage. Can we discuss how you went about doing that, Sarah? How did I go about doing it? Um, I did a little book called A Little Book of Craftivism a few years ago, and the CEO of Share Action who's an incredible campaign organization that does shareholder activism. She contacted me and I'm a big fan. She didn't know this, but I was proper fangirl and had a big girl crush on her as a campaigner. And she emailed me saying, for three years, we tried to have a conversation with Marks and Spencers about them becoming a living wage employer. And we've tried loads of types of activism and we're not getting anywhere. And I've just picked up your little book and it's so weird. I thought you might have an idea. (laughs) that might work or that might just be different to what we've tried and she said you've got five weeks before the AGM what can you do so my activist hat on the you know with my background I was like okay so if the CEO isn't listening who does the CEO listen to the board he's on the board there's only 13 board members he has to listen to them he doesn't have to listen to me or others so how do we engage them in it and do it in an attractive gentle way if all of these demonstrations and things aren't working and a few I think it was a year before my MP at the time I'd sent lots of petitions and postcards and emails to her saying what are you doing on this campaign and I can't believe you voted against this and I got an email from her team asking me to stop contacting my MP and they said it was a waste of my time and their time and charity's money so I'd made I'd embroidered a message on a handkerchief for her to say don't blow it use your power for good I know you've got a really difficult job and a big job but I want to encourage you in your difficult role and I put my name yours in hope and my postcode so she knew I was a constituent I asked to meet her and it really changed the dynamic from her seeing me as this angry activist that was just shouting at her to seeing that I was quite nervous and embarrassed but I'd spent hours making her this handkerchief that wasn't perfect and I wanted to get to know her and see what made her tick and we found some areas we'd agreed on and we had agreement with and I'd helped her 
on some of those campaigns and vice versa. So instead of creating a new campaign for the sake of it, I said, well, why don't we buy handkerchiefs from Marks and Spencers? So we're seen as customers. I got 24 craftivists from across the UK who either looked like or were part of their core customer demographic um, because I knew they'd listen to their customers more than other people. And I wanted them from across the UK, not just London centric. And I told everyone to Google everything about their board member. And we had 24 because we had 14 board members, five of the chief investment officers of the biggest companies that buy shares from M&S because I knew that would scare them as well and they'd listen to them. And five of their celebrity models which totally didn't make any difference at all. So that was good learning. (laughs) But I said, Google everything about your hanky receiver from what colors they wear, what makes them tick, what are their passions on LinkedIn? Are they trustees somewhere? How did they rise up to be a board member? Was it from the shop floor? Was it from a different, you know, right? Try and see them as humans. You know, what patterns do they wear? Are they quite flamboyant? Are they quite shy? You know, we can all do Google searches and find a lot out about a lot of people. And then find a quote that, is really inspiring about being the change in the world, but a quote from someone that they'd admire. So I got people to embroider a lovely timeless quote on a handkerchief that linked in just with about, you know, being the positive change you want to see, not about the living wage. And for something that we thought that those gift receivers would like, it wasn't about what colours we liked or patterns we liked, it was about them. And then I got them to write handwritten letters saying, you know, as a customer... I love M&S, you know, I've grown up in your place and that's where we buy our knickers and our food and, you know, all of the stuff that we love about M&S. And therefore, I'm quite sad that you don't pay the living wage because not only does it make sense in terms of your employees being able to not have to get second jobs and stuff, but it also makes business sense for staff retention, for efficiency, for PR. We had a very robust argument to say I'm saddened that you don't pay it because it doesn't make sense in terms of business and ethics and I want to encourage you to have a conversation with share action because I think you could actually pay the living wage and wouldn't it be brilliant not only for M&S but also for other companies your size bigger and smaller who are you're really influential for and I think it would be brilliant and you know I believe in you as a person to take this forward and then we hand delivered them at the AGM in boxes with ribbon and thinking about you know all of the stuff that your listeners love about the power of colors and fonts and Mm. design and made sure everything was lowercase and you know hopeful colors and soft furnishings lots of different elements and then we hand delivered them not with a big hoo-ha but quite subtly and quite humbly to each of them separately and said we've made you these gifts read the letter in your own time but as we bought a share each so we could go to the AGM we said as shareholders and as customers you know I think this could be brilliant if you could do it. And we just want to see if it is actually possible for you to do. And of course, they all loved their handkerchiefs. We got meetings with the CEO and with the head of sustainability and HR. They came up with excuses over a few months. So we said, oh, well, that's interesting what you're saying. Can we go back and see whether, you know, we can come up with another solution for you? And then I got people to do Christmas cards saying, all we want for Christmas is the living wage and Valentine's cards saying, please show your love. So we kept momentum and they announced announced a month before the next AGM that they were going to pay the living wage to 50,000 staff. So we went to the AGM and said, well done you, congratulated them. We didn't say, look, we've won this campaign. It wasn't about us and we would have lost good relationships with them. We said, well done you. It would be better if you could become a living wage employer 
you know, with the accreditation, which they still haven't mm. done. But we wanted to say, you know, we know you have a tough job and you've got lots to do. And what was interesting was they all came to us to say, thanks for my hanky. You know, I went home and saw my two little boys who asked me what the living wage was and I had to tell them. And another board member said, you know, my hanky I've put in the archives of M&S in Leeds because we put everything in the archive that has changed our company. So I put that in and the chair of the board took me aside and said it was the most powerful campaign they'd experienced because it was so respectful and it was unusual. And he he was really honest with me. He said, you know, it was so weird that every time we had a meeting and they meet regularly, one of them would say, what was on your hanky? Because they didn't know, because we didn't do, you know, what people often do in campaigns is let's do a big presentation and we hang everything up and we say, look what we are giving you. And it wasn't about that. It was intimate activism. So they kept saying to each other, what was on yours? Where have you put yours? And then they'd say, you know, their argument was actually quite interesting. Should we look into it? So although the living wage often wasn't on their agenda, it would pop up on their agenda because they had bespoke handkerchiefs that were bought mm. from M&S, from their customers. We had a robust argument all of the sensory elements of you remember something more if it's a surprise. You know, we give good surprises, which creates dopamine in people, which means that they want to engage with you more because their body goes, that person gave me dopamine. I want to meet them again. Whereas most activist surprises are bad surprises like milkshakes or shouting. So our bodies go, I don't want to engage with that activist because they Mm. made me feel bad whether we want to or not. So there was lots and lots of elements from, you know, the senses to the neuroscience to the language we use that was non-violent communication all of those elements is how the campaign was effective i think i mean i think you've alluded to this during our conversation sarah but what role does beauty play in your protests or your activism rather so much and i was hoping you'd get onto that because i was thinking we need to talk about the power of aesthetics i mean it's interesting i'm on this two-year fellowship and we had to do a bit of a it's like a myers-briggs thing but it's called the hogan assessment and my two motives I'm 100% on which is quite rare to be so extreme was altruism and aesthetics and I think for me I'm like totally that makes sense like everything Mm. I do is how can we make the world better for everyone And how can we use the aesthetics, the beauty in the world? You know, I find it quite sad that a lot of activism is ugly when you think, hang on a minute, you know, we're trying to promote a more beautiful, kind and fair world. And a lot of our activism isn't beautiful, kind or very fair on people we demonise or we victimise and we can be quite binary. And I just think I love exhibitions. I love films. I love aesthetics. I'm constantly like a magpie looking at pretty things and I think activism can be like honey rather than vinegar you know attract people with that honey of doesn't this look intriguing and cute and a little bit interesting and we know from neuroscience that if people self-initiate to want to see something they go with more of an open heart and an open mind so you know coming back to shop dropping our little scrolls are purple, turquoise or mauve because they're seen as luxury colours. And the paper is cream rather than clinical white and lovely texture with the embossed stamp. So it feels quite luxurious and it feels quite exciting that you found it. And it's pretty to the eyes, you know, even if it's not your style, you can still see the time and energy has been put into it and the colours and the fonts are all thought out to try and make it attract people to be curious rather than to feel forced and shouted at and judged and I think beauty is just we need to harness it much more 
As you've already pointed out, words are important too in finding the correct message. You mentioned the book about the Catherine Hamnet t-shirts with the, the big emblazoned choose life messages on them that have been subverted. I wonder if there's a danger this could happen to what you do. You've crafted this handbook now and that could be used by people you don't approve of, I guess. Craft is generally seen as this quiet, humble sort of activity, but it has been used as a propaganda tool by fascist governments in Germany and Italy. They organised a big craft fair in Berlin in 1938. I mean, does that kind of thing worry you? It did much more than now, but it does a bit, yeah. I think because of there's more demand for what I do and I can't just do lots of delivery, so I'm always thinking, how can I give people the tools to do it and do the handbook and do all of the different bits? I am worried people can... You know, our mini banners, for example, we've had people who've written really hateful, divisive stuff and hung them up. And I don't have much control over that. And it's quite sad. But a lot of the time it doesn't happen. And I get emails and direct messages from people saying, I started stitching quite a hateful thing. And then I read your craft of thoughts and thought, oh, no, that's not very loving. And that's (laughs) So it actually, if you do the process well, it sort of filters out people who are doing it for a hateful reason. I've had lots of people who started very angry and very demonizing of someone and then they've gone through the process of the strategy of the stitching or the making themselves and then how are they going to put it out there and that's helped them sort of mitigate that risk of being hateful. Craftivism in general, if you look at it, you know, I talk a lot about how gentle protest is what I do with the Craftivist Collective and there are other forms out there because sadly there are quite harmful forms of craftivism out there I've seen and they're much more popular than my stuff so I've seen crocheted voodoo dolls of Donald Trump which people will find hilarious and share lots and like much more on Instagram and I find that harmful rather than helpful because you're focusing on personality not policy you're demonizing people you're scapegoating you're not actually doing anything apart from objectifying someone and saying yeah that's awful and they're awful you're not thinking why are they doing it how can i be part of the change locally nationally internationally i was interested you weren't that keen on the pussy hats which was uh, for listeners who don't know an open source knitting pattern that sprung up in advance of the women's march on washington in protest at donald trump what was it about that you didn't like sarah well i mean first of all it's easy for all of us isn't it to find everything problematic and pull it apart so you know there's great stuff of it was visual it helped the media it did definitely make people feel not alone around america i have lots of craftivists in america and i do a bit of work there and you saw the hope of like oh my word other people feel like this as well my concern was like a lot of activism it's quite simple and and it can have risks of polarization so Mm. you know the fact that they were all pink excluded a lot of people who um are are not white there's people who might not be able to wear them because their partner is against them politically in that area or their area they feel like they can't wear them there's a real risk with a lot of activism the and a lot of i work mostly with people who don't see themselves as activists or who don't like activists and they will always be like they're so smug they're judgmental it's easy for them to do they make me feel bad there was a risk of that of if you're not with us you're against us not knowing the complexities of people and it being very simple of this is all trump is awful when we need to look at okay what are the systems what are the structures what are the biases what can it was a it was a a great thing for knitters to do and feel really good about themselves and say I've done something really good with medium that I love to use anyway so it got lots of people saying this is great really empowering and for some of them it led to campaigning on the ground in their community on abortion on lots of different issues but for some people it was 
I've done this nice thing and that's it. So I think we got to be honest with people of the importance of nuance, the importance of strategy, the importance of your craftivism object is a catalyst, not a conclusion. How do you mitigate those risks of people feeling excluded, of demonizing, of oversimplifying things, of people just doing a hundred knitted pink hats and saying, does anyone want them? I'm going to make more. And you think, is your motive that you love knitting? Or is your motive that you want to serve this cause for equality? So I do a lot of challenge and hopefully in a loving way of people to say, you know, what are your motives? What's your strategy? And nothing's perfect. And in lots of ways, you know, it gets the conversation happening. The fact that the V&A have got one in their archive and other galleries have means the conversation around feminism and around gender equality and around people abusing their power as presidents is being had. But I think we've got to be careful that it's not fueling division or oversimplifying things or making people just feel great. I think it might be a bit late in America, Sarah. I think, I think the division has been fueled. But look, I have taken up loads of your time. Our hour is, is kind of up. So it's the final question, which is the inevitable. What are your plans for the future? My plans for the future are how can I make the Craftivist Collective as welcoming and accessible for everyone to use our kits and tools and free resources. And I'm doing stuff on climate next year because we've got COP in Glasgow, which is a big, important thing and helping with a few projects. But yeah, for the future, I just want, yeah, I want to help people be effective, gentle craftivists. I want to help people be good, gentle protesters, not using craft as well. And, you know, just be of best use without burning out. It's a bit of a hippie answer, but you know <laughs> make activism more beautiful kind and, and there was me thinking the punks hated hippies well, i mean what's going on anyway yes no that was lovely sarah thank you so much for your time i really appreciated it It was genuinely enlightening oh thanks for having me and i hope it was helpful for your listeners no, it's a complete pleasure thank you all right man take care to discover more about sarah and the craftivist collective go to craftivist-collective.com She's also crowdfunding a new book, which you can find out more about at unbound.com. There are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And I have a new website. You can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter, and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And if you feel so inclined, you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.